A living answer to prayer sitting in the back row there. So grateful to have you guys with us. I prayed uh, that you would be able to join us next week, thinking that maybe for breakfast would be an enticement and all that kind of stuff. Um, But look at that. God answered our prayers a week early. So great to have you guys with us. So thankful that you're able to join us this morning. And as Ben said, make sure you get time to catch up with them and what God is doing there in their lives. All right. Um, One other thing that I forgot to mention is uh, several of you actually turned in a connection card last week. Um, My purpose was twofold in that, okay? One, to let you know that everybody can do it, all right? It's not that hard to do. Uh, All you have to do is tear it off the bottom of your page, write whatever it is that you want, prayer requests on the back, anything like that, drop it in the offering box, and you know you can do it. It is possible for you to fill out a connection card, okay? Um, and like I said many times in the past, if you have a prayer request, I will share this with the deacons, the leadership of our church, if you want me to, um, and we will be praying for that. I can, I can promise you that. Um, or if there's other things that you want to write down on there, you're certainly welcome to do that. But what we want you to write down on there, if you haven't done it yet, is all the correct information that you want to have in the church directory. Um, We're in the process of going through that, trying to update it. So if you would like to do that, uh, we'd love to have you help us out in that way. And and by the way, if you're a regular online uh, viewer and you want to be part of the church directory, send us a note on on Messenger or in the comments uh, as you're watching, and we'll put your address in there. And I know that uh, there are several in the online group that... Uh, regularly prays and regularly is involved in uh, church as much as they can be from a distance. So if you want to be on our uh, directory, you can certainly do that and we put you in there. All right. So last week we finished off First Peter. Uh, it's been a while that we've been in that amazing book uh, and we're not going to spend a lot of time reviewing what we did there. But last week as we finished off, we reminded ourselves, Peter reminded us actually that we are called to stand and, and stand firm and stand true on the word of God. And in that standing, Peter challenged us to be faithful servants of the one true God. So it's not just a passive thing where we stand. Uh, even by virtue of the word stand, it's not passive, but he wants us to do more than just stand and take a firm stand on God's word. He wants us to let God's word work through us and, and encourage us to go out and be faithful in the service of our one true God. So um, we're going to take a time this morning, since we're in between series, uh, to look at a passage of scripture, maybe not as familiar as uh, you, you might Think, but it is something that we as followers of God are familiar with. And the guy who is in the midst of this is a guy who we know very well. He's a guy who the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart. So we're going to take a look this morning briefly at a guy by the name of David and find out how David served the Lord and see if we can't make that practical for us today in our service for the Lord as well. Now, let me start off by giving you, you might think, well, Pastor, you've been here for a while now, we're September, we'll be starting our 10th year of ministry here, which we praise the Lord for, um, but in my family, I'll give you some personal background information, in my family, I've earned a reputation, okay, and I, and I want to give you some information about me and see if you can pick up on the reputation that I have earned within my family. And by my family, I especially mean my own, my wife and my kids and and that, okay? Um, I want to see if you can come to the same conclusion that they have come to over the years. When we first started dating, I would buy Barb a rose and I would put it in her mailbox at school. And then she'd open the mailbox and there's a rose. You know, I I knew that she liked roses, or at least she started liking roses after I gave them to her anyway. Um, But uh, so I would put a rose in the the mailbox. She would open, oh, such a nice thing. Uh, And she would take it back and all the girls would, you know, I don't know if they were jealous or whatever. But anyway, um, they, so that was kind of a thing. And as we continued in our relationship, obviously we got married, we moved to South Africa. And I was really happy because in South Africa, at the robot, anybody know what a robot is? At the robot, which is a, a stoplight, okay, that's what they called stoplights over there, at the robot, and it was just about any robot that you, you stopped at that was a busy intersection, there would be people selling things, okay? Uh, and, and so often at our robot, uh, at, at 
N7, I think it was, the, the main road there that runs from Cape Town all the way up to Namibia. And then our Bloberg Road, there was always somebody selling roses there. And so I would often stop and buy roses and drive home. And then one day it dawned on me, you know, if you bought your own rose bushes, you wouldn't have to stop and buy roses at the robot. So that began my endeavor with planting roses. But you know, when I bought a rose, usually at the robot, the roses, they didn't have much scent to them. Okay, so I knew two things that I wanted in my rose bushes. Number one, I wanted them to be long stem roses because have you ever tried to put uh, one of those tea roses into a vase? Into a, you can't, okay? And the other thing I wanted, what are, what are roses famous for? Their smell. But if you buy cut roses, even sometimes if you buy them from a florist, they don't have that scent. So when I would go to the nursery, I would say, okay, I want a rose that's number one, long stem, and number two, that has a nice scent to it, okay? And so they would point me in the right direction, and, and so I started buying roses, and we had about six rose bushes uh, right off the end of our porch, and then we had a couple of climbing roses, which didn't fit the category of long stem, but then we had a couple of climbing roses on our wall, uh, and people enjoyed seeing the roses, and I would go out every now and then, cut off a rose, and bring it into my wife, or if I was going to visit somebody, she would go out and cut some roses and send them with me, and so we accomplished this idea of, ah, I don't have to buy roses anymore because I have my own production of roses, okay? Um, another thing that uh, when, when, I, when we got married, um, I bought Rose, uh, Barb a microwave for the wedding present, and she promised me that she would buy me a dachshund for my wedding present. Because I loved dachshunds. I mean, the only dog I ever had in my life was a dachshund. And um, when we moved from Niagara Falls to Messina, we couldn't bring the dachshund with us. Uh, so my dad kept the dachshund when we moved and so on and so forth. So we decided when we get to South Africa, we, where we're going to live for a long time, we'll buy a dachshund. So we bought a dachshund. And then I decided, you know what, we need to breed this, because this dachshund was, I mean, her grandfather was grand champion of the UK, so uh, she's got a very good bloodline. So if we breed this dachshund, uh, then we can have our own supply of dachshunds forever. You know, we won't have to worry about it, right? So the first thing, the, the, when we bought her from the breeder, the breeder said, now you can't breed her for three years, you know, just trust me on that. And so we waited, we did the whole thing, and three years, we took her to a breeder, we paid the fee, and um, we thought, all right, this is the beginning, you know, we're going to start having dachshunds. Well, I took her to the vet, and the dachshunds feeling, or the vet's feeling around Buffy, and he, he said, boy, he says, I think there's four puppies in here. And in my mind, I'm thinking, ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. Um, <laughs> Because they weren't cheap, all right? And, and then I'm thinking, okay, so we can keep one, and then we'll sell the other three, and on and on and on. Well, uh, Buffy eventually gives birth, and the first dachshund is stillborn. Um, Dapple, by the way, if you know anything about dachshunds, you know that that's even more special than regular dachshunds. It was a dapple dachshund, but it was stillborn. Uh, and the vet said, listen, uh, you, better, um, you better come down to the office because... Um, I don't know that the dog's going to make it. I go, oh, there goes my plan. Um, so anyway, we go down, and, and uh, they had delivered the second puppy. And I said, well, where are the other two? And, and the vet says, well, I was wrong. The two puppies that were inside were so big, I was feeling shoulders and hips of two dogs, not four dogs. Because dachshunds are usually about this big when they're born. All right? So he was feeling shoulders. And so it was only two dogs. All right? So anyway, we kept Ollie because, again, he's got such an amazing pedigree. And then we see a note on the bulletin board at the vet's office, dachshund, free dachshund to be given away uh, uh, because the older lady that owned them had seven dogs or something like that. She had to downsize dogs. And so, okay, brilliant idea. She's already had puppies. We can take this dog and we can mate them. And we'll, we're back in the dachshund business again, right? The first stop after we got the new dachshund in the car was to the vet because she had mastitis. So we paid, we paid big bucks for the, the birth of Ollie, you know, not, not going to produce any money for us. And by the way, the vet said, and you need to get Buffy sterilized because she shouldn't have any more puppies. 
Okay. Um, so then to the vet with Saucy. And so I, so I got this, this great plan, though. We're going to have dachshunds forever. At least Saucy and Ollie can get together, right? And make. No, they couldn't. So anyway, that's, you know, there goes that plan. So anyway, uh, we're another thing about me that um, I will share with you is for the longest time, I didn't like Chinese food. It was, to me, it was revolting. Why would you, you know, just don't want to eat it. And then one day we were at somebody's house and, you know, the pastor thing is to be polite and to eat whatever's put in front of you. And so we were at Mari Bucker's house and Mari said, uh, she'd found out that I didn't like Chinese food and she had something else available for me. But she said, don't you want to try? Okay, Mari, I'll try. So I tried sweet and sour pork, I think it was. And boy, was that good. So I think, okay, not a problem. Then Barb has this thing that she couldn't go out and eat at a, just any restaurant, but Chinese food was something that we could go out and eat. So being the good husband that I am, I decide, all right, I'll have Chinese with my wife, even though it's not my favorite thing. Well, it became my favorite thing. And I started eating Chinese, and I loved it. So what do I do? I learn how to cook my own Chinese food. Because why do I want to go out and pay the price at a restaurant when I can make it myself, right? So the first thing that I ever made that was Chinese food was bourbon chicken. And don't worry, there's no bourbon in the bourbon chicken. There's just, it's just what it's called because it was first made on, in New Orleans on Bourbon Street. And why it's Chinese, I don't know. But every Chinese restaurant you go to sells bourbon chicken. Um, so I decide I'm going to make bourbon chicken, and I make it, and my family loves it. There's never any leftovers when I make bourbon chicken. Well, there might be today after church, because that's what we're having, and there's only two of us now. But anyway, bourbon chicken, oh, Chinese food. When we go to the mall, and we're, we're in a hurry, and want to get something to eat that's fairly quick, I will stop at the Chinese place and get Chinese. My wife doesn't even eat it anymore, hardly ever. Um, not as much as I do anyway, but, you know, so, but I'm learning how to make this Chinese food because I don't want to pay the price that I have to pay at a Chinese restaurant for Chinese food if I can do it myself. Another time, we come home from South Africa on furlough and Barbara's brother's got this new game. And he wants to teach us how to play this new game. He's really good at it. And he spent 100 bucks on this new game. Uh, and he takes the stuff out and he puts it, sets it up in the, in the yard. And we start playing this game. And I get pretty good at it. Um, and so I said to Barbara, I says, you know, I, I want one of these games. And she says, well, we can't afford 100 bucks. That, that's when 100 bucks was something. Okay? Um, I can't, we can't afford 100 bucks. I said, well, you know, it's not that hard. I can make it. So I made it. Now, the first, the first one, I actually, when we were out in Illinois last time, I looked at this game that I made, and I thought, did I really make that? It's kind of like some of the messages that I pull up out of my file, and I read through them. I said, did I really preach that? Um, I looked at this board, and I said, did I really make that? Because the hole was like about this big. And it's only supposed to be about this big. Okay? Um, but I had to cut it out freehand with a jigsaw. Since then, I've bought some tools, and I've made probably about 20 of these cornhole boards. Okay, um, and so much so that people will ask me, I've actually made a couple to sell, and you know what, I've actually made more from the boards that I make than what Tim paid for his first set of boards. But anyway, um, I make these boards, and, and people say, Pastor, can you, make the, can you make these for us? We'll pay you for it, so on and so forth. So I really have, in fact, I made a couple, Ron and Marge just got yours this week um, from, the, from the spaghetti dinner fundraiser, uh, and, and those were pretty successful things to, to have at the auction. Uh, so I, I got pretty good at making these cornhole boards. I got another one I'm making now. Um, so I enjoy it. I became pretty good at it, but I didn't ever want to pay the price that they were charging. In fact, if you go online now, they're over 200 bucks for a custom set of cornhole boards. I don't charge that much, but anyway. Um, and so that was that. Was that. Um, and, and so I, you know, I've kind of earned this reputation that... Um, well, another one, the planners out in front of the church here. Um, last food truck, we had a couple, several people ask, hey, where'd those planners come from? Oh, our pastor made them. Oh, does he make them to sell? Um, when my aunt was here, she saw, she said, that's lovely. So I made one for her to take back with her. So people like these things. And so I've kind of, I, we, we looked at planners and thought, no way. 
I'm not paying that kind of money for those planners. It's not going to happen. We, it's not in the church budget. I can't just, you know. But we talked for years about something that would look nice in front of the church. So we took care of it. We made it. And, and there they sit. And, and they're growing. They're doing well. Um, can you get the idea where I'm going with all of this? Yeah. <laughs> I'm cheap. But the funny thing is, you know what happens? Rachel calls and she says, hey, dad, can you make this? She doesn't want to pay that much money for it either. She, she, she sends me this picture of a bathtub bench. Never seen them before in my life. Dad, can you, can you make one of these? It doesn't look that hard. Yeah, I can make one of those. So I made it and took it to her. Katie and Josh, first, first child they had, Katie says, hey, we'd like to have a bookshelf for the, for, the, for the baby's bedroom. Can you make a bookshelf for us? I've made a number of bookshelves. Sure, I can make a bookshelf. Not a problem. And then like a week or two later, she sends me this picture of the bookshelf she wants. I didn't know that it was a cat in a hat bookshelf that kind of goes like this. And I'm like, how in the world am I going to make that? And I said, well, look, I'm not afraid to try something. So I tried it, made it. It actually came out pretty good. So yes, I'm cheap. I guess it's rubbed off to some degree on my kids. Maybe not Micah so much. But anyway, um, yeah, he's the last one. But he still, he'll call me up. Hey, Dad, how can I make this? So in some ways, maybe it has. But you see, Dad is cheap. Dad is not, doesn't like to spend a lot of money on things that Dad thinks he can do himself. Um, I've made can jam games. I've made bottle games. You know, and, and I've always tried to be uh, kind of creative to save me a little bit of money. So my reputation, yes, is that Dad is cheap. Okay? Dad doesn't want to spend a lot of money on things that he thinks he can make. Um, we, we used to have lots of teams come to visit us in South Africa. And one of our favorite things to do was to go to the souvenir market where all the handcrafted stuff was made. And, and I got the reputation of being the one to take the visitors around because nobody could get the deals that Pastor gets, you know, um, and, and so we'd go to the flea market, or we'd go to the market, and the guy would have a, he wanted, one, one of our guys wanted a, a tall giraffe. And those weren't cheap. And so I get there, and, and it's like four o'clock in the afternoon, uh, and the guy gives me a price, and I said, no, 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 come on. You gotta, you gotta give me a better price than that. And barter, bartering was always acceptable there. So I took it to probably to the degree that most people didn't take it, but anyway, it was acceptable. So the guy says to me, it's gonna be X amount of rand. I said, no, 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 that's too much. This is for my boss. He came to visit from America. He wants to take a giraffe home with him. Come on, you got to give me a better price than that. He gives me another price. I said, no, no, that's still too much. I said, listen, here's the deal. Either, you know, it's four o'clock in the afternoon. Either you can sell it to me now for, and I gave him a price, or you can pack it up and take it home with you. What do you want to do? And so he sold it to me for the price that I, I gave him. Um, so I get, this, I, I get this reputation of being somebody who doesn't want to pay a lot for things that he necessarily wants. Okay? Um, in our relationship with the Lord, though, we don't want to have that kind of rela- reputation. We want it to be a different reputation. Here, I got a song for you. Timothy's going to play it for us. Um, it's a song that sets the tone for our message this morning. It's totally different than what Pastor Tim does when he sees something that he wants. Go ahead, Timothy, play it for us if you would.
Great song, great message. I will not offer anything that costs me nothing. Coming from the guy who wants to pay nothing for the things that he gets. But when it comes to my God and my relationship with him, when it comes to your God and your relationship with him, uh, our goal should be to offer all that we have, all that we are, to the one true God in service for him. Peter challenged us last week to be individuals who will serve our great God. And and sometimes that costs us, costs us a lot. Uh, And yet we need to be willing to make that sacrifice. This time in David's rule that he's writing this, this verse, in fact, if you take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Chronicles chapter 21, we find David later in his rule after his affair with Bathsheba, and after his reign has been well established, he is seen as the king of kings, so to speak, the king who was far better than their last king, the king who will set the standard for all kings to come. This man, David, is a man after his God's own heart. He's a man who has been successful in battle against the Philistines and against all the other enemies of Israel. He has seen God bless his kingdom in many ways. It's possible at this point in David's life that his confidence has increased more in himself and he had outgrown his dependency on God and began to think, hey, I, I know what I need to do as king. I've got this. I can handle this. And, and nobody has to worry about it. You know, so sometimes I think we get to that point in our Christian life where we've been a Christian for a long time. We've been serving God faithfully. and We've been serving him well. And we think, you know what? I, I don't really need to run this one past God. I, I got this one. It's pretty simple. I can take care of it myself. Um, And so it's important for us to understand that our confidence always must be in our God. The things that we do, we do for him. We do because we believe he has called us to do those things. And you say, Pastor, how do you know that about David? Well, David decided to do something that showed, at least at this particular point in his life, that he was out of touch with his great God. The good news is that before we get to the end of the chapter, uh, we'll see that David confesses his sin and the relationship that he has with his, his great God is restored. But let's take a look at this passage of scripture and see what life lesson we can learn from David that can help us in our walk with the Lord. David's attitudes and actions we see in 1 Chronicles chapter 21 verses 1 through 7 actually displeased God. His actions and his attitude were not pleasing to his God. Verses 1 through 7, let me quickly read them for you. It says this, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and to the leaders of the people, Go number Israel from Beersheba to Dan and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And Joab answered, May the Lord make his people a hundred times more than they are, but my Lord the king... Are they not all my Lord's servants? Why then does my Lord require this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt in Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. Therefore, Joab departed and went throughout all Israel and came to Jerusalem. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to David. All Israel had 1,100,000 men who drew the sword. 
And David had 470,000 men who drew the sword. But he did not count Levi and Benjamin among them, for the king's word was abominable to Joab. And God was displeased with his thing. Therefore, he struck Israel. So David said to God, well, let's stop there because we'll get into that in a minute. But we see here that David's attitude was not right. David did not please the Lord by doing this thing. And you might think to yourself, what's the big deal? All he did was count how many people were in Israel and how many soldiers there were. Basically, he took a census. What's the problem with that? Well, first of all, did you see there in verse 1 as we read it, it says, Satan stood up against Israel and moved David's heart to do something. We should never give in to Satan. And if we're giving in to the Holy Spirit, we'll know when Satan is behind something. And the Holy Spirit will convince us and help us to see that and, and help us to not go along with Satan. But the text continues to tell us that David gave orders to number all of Israel. Now that's a problem. Because God told David and told Israel as a nation that they were never to number themselves. They were never to count and find out how many warriors they had. Now... We might not quite understand the sin in this matter, but it boils down to a command given to Israel that dealt with misplaced trust. You see, when we count how many people we have on our side, when we count the number of warriors we have to go into battle, what then is our trust in? Our trust is in the warriors. It's not in, it's not in the God who has promised to give us victory, um, there are three commands in Deuteronomy 7 that were given with regard to the, who would ever be the king of Israel, the future kings. And number one was don't multiply horses. And you can add to that chariots. So don't multiply those. Don't multiply wives. Okay? That was the second command given. And the third was don't multiply wealth. And we might say, well, is, what's really wrong with, with horses? Well, nothing's wrong with horses. Okay? But God said to the kings, don't number them, don't multiply them, don't keep building up your arsenal, if you will. Secondly, don't multiply wives. We kind of all get that idea. What's wrong with that, right? Um, God said, um, Adam and Eve, from the very beginning, husband shall leave his wife, shall leave his family, cleave, cleave to his wife, they shall become one flesh, and they shall never separate. One wife, one life, one time. That's what God's command was from the very beginning. Don't multiply wives. See, for kings, you know what? And you take that one step further because you know what was, you know why a king had so many wives? Because every time you made a treaty with another country, you got another wife. So what were you placing your trust in? The other country and the alliance that you had, the treaty that you had, the, the fact that they promised to come and help go battle uh, your enemies? So where was your trust? Where was your trust placed? It was in the alliance that you had, not necessarily in the God who called you to be the king. And then he said, don't multiply wealth. Again, not something that we need to be focused on because God didn't call us to be wealthy. First Corinthians chapter 1, not many wise, not many noble, not many wealthy were called. Um, okay? Not that there's anything wrong with wealth, but it shouldn't be our purpose in life to amass wealth. Jack Deere makes the following insightful observation about these three prohibitions. He says this, all three prohibitions, horses, wives, and wealth, multiplying them, they then were designed to reduce the king to a status of a servant, totally dependent on his master, the Lord. You see, God said, if you are dependent on me, it doesn't matter how many horses you have. It doesn't matter how much wealth you have. It doesn't matter how many treaties you have because your trust is not in any of those things. It is in God himself. You see, David had forsaken an attitude of dependence on his great God. He wrote about this dependence over in Psalm 20. Listen to this. He says, we will rejoice in your salvation. David is talking. He's talking to God. We will rejoice in your salvation. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. Not in the treaties, not in the horses, not in the, not in the number of uh, weapons we have. We will set up the name of our God in our banners. 
May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we, Israel, we under my leadership as the king, David says, we will remember the name of the Lord our God. That's where our trust will be, only in the Lord. And so David has kind of turned his back on that. And he's not trusting in the Lord anymore. He's trusting in his own resources. We also see here that David refused to take Joab's tip. Okay, Joab says to him, I'm not sure we should do this. So first of all, we see that David gave in to Satan's temptation. He said, okay, uh, David... David says, I'm going to listen to this advice. I'm going, to, I'm going to act on what Satan has done. Satan moved David to, he tempted him. That's what the scripture is saying to us. He, he, he tempted David and David gave in to that temptation. And then, as is often the case, God brought somebody along to David and said, hey, you know what? You need to listen. You need to think about what you're doing. You shouldn't actually be doing this. And this guy that he brought along was Joab, his the chief guy in his army, the head of his army. And Joab gives David some advice, some counsel. He says, listen, David, you really shouldn't do this. Oh, but listen, you're not, who do you think you are, Joab? You're just the guy I chose to be the commander of the army. You don't know what you're talking about. I'm the king, I'm gonna do this. Joab says, no, David, don't do this. It's not right, you shouldn't do this. God often brings people across our path to challenge us to do what is right, to maintain the path of honoring God and the decisions that we make. Sometimes we appreciate that and we follow their advice. In this case, David didn't follow Joab's advice. He did his own thing. Joab tried to give the king some wise counsel. And if David would have heeded Joab's counsel, a terrible tragedy would have been averted. Something that was going to now plague the nation of Israel could have been uh, done away with or prevented. But David, in his pride, refused to take the advice of his trusted, beloved captain. And he went ahead and did his own thing. Aren't you glad that God often brings people across our path to point us in the right direction, to give us good counsel? I'm thankful for the men that God has assembled here at Calvary Baptist Church to help me in the decision-making processes as a church. We have some good men who God has raised up and, and we get together and we talk about the things that we need to do as a church and we try to... Uh, we, 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 <laughs> This last, uh, we had a deacon's meeting on Wednesday night. Uh, we, we got together at 6.30, and you know what time we started our meeting? About 8.30. You know what we were doing for the first two hours? Praying. We, we go through our church roles, and we figure out who we need to pray for, how we need to pray for them. We find out what's going on in each other's lives, and we spend solid time in prayer. We don't make decisions lightly. Because it impacts all of you and all the people that God is going to allow us to minister to. So David turned his back on that wisdom, the opportunity he had. And so as as individuals, we need to trust those that God puts in our lives so that they can give us good advice and we can at least prayerfully consider it before we just dismiss it. We get the idea here, it happens so quickly that David says, don't bother me with your trivial input, I'm not interested. So Joab obeyed. Joab did what the king told him to do, knowing that it was going to probably bring bad consequences to the nation of Israel. And we see, as the text carries on, that David's behavior caused serious trouble for himself and for Israel. It wasn't just David's sin that caused problems in David's life. David's sin caused problems throughout all of Israel. The Lord, in in his mercy and in his grace, the Lord gave David three options of how he should be punished. I, I don't know that... Maybe once in a while, as parents, we give our kids an option of what they, what they want for discipline. Um, not very often, at least in our house, we didn't do that, but sometimes we do. But David get, got three options from God, and God says, here's your options. David, 
option number one, three years of famine. Ooh, that's tough. That's kind of hard. Who wants three years of famine? No water, no, no way to provide food for your family or, or for your nation. Three years of famine. The next option was three months to be defeated by your enemies with the sword of your enemy overtaking you. Ugh. That famine is not looking so bad right now. Who wants to be defeated by the enemy? And that also meant death to your numbers that you had just numbered. So that's going to go down. The third option, three days of the sword of the Lord, the plague in the land with the angel of the Lord destroying throughout all the territory of Israel. Huh. How would you like to have to choose from those three things? None of them are good options. Needless to say, David finds himself in a heap of trouble. And not just David, but this trouble is going to impact and affect the entire nation. So you understand here that David's attitude and actions displease God. And sometimes when we have the wrong attitude, the wrong, take the wrong actions, we displease God. And you know what? Sin never happens in a vacuum. Our sin often impacts others. And we see that to be the case here in David's life. Well, in verses 8 through 21, we see what David decides. David admitted his sin and confessed it to God. Can I tell you this? It's always the right thing to admit your sin to God and to confess it. Because you know what? He knows it anyway. It's not like we're hiding it from him. He understands it, he knows it, and his spirit is prompting us to confess our sins and to make things right. First of all, we see that David owned his sin and he repented. Oftentimes, we don't want to own our sin, right? We don't want to say, hey, yes, I did that. I'm sorry, God. David owned it, he repented. This is absolutely the right response from David. He did not deny his behavior. He didn't make excuses for his sinfulness. Instead, he realized it before God and he sinned and he dealt with his sin. This is quite different from Israel's previous king. Remember who Israel's king was before David? It was a guy by the name of Saul. Saul was appointed king uh, and, and God allowed him to be the king for a period of time. But Samuel, the guy who appointed him as king, confronted Saul for his sinfulness. And Saul gave this response in 1 Samuel 15. You see, he was supposed to go in and he was supposed to destroy the Amalekites. He was supposed to wipe them out. Destroy all the cattle. Destroy all the people. Why? God had a reason for it. The Amalekites were wicked to the Israelites when they were on their way from from Egypt to the promised land. And God says, it's come up before me. Now they're going to pay that price. And Saul, you're the one who's going to enact my judgment upon that nation. So Saul leads the people into battle, and after the battle, um, Samuel is told by God, you need to go confront Saul for his sinfulness. Well, what did Saul do? What did he do this time? He said, well, he kept some of the animals to make sacrifices, and he spared King Agag alive. So Samuel gets there, and he says, Saul, what have you done? Saul says, hey, man, I've been obedient. I've done all that the Lord commanded me to do. And Samuel says, well, what's then this bleeding of the sheep that I hear? We don't normally bring sheep and oxen into the battle. Well, why do I hear this in the, where the battle is taking place? Oh, 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 uh, um, that was the people. You know, the people that, you, that God has called me to lead. That was, it's their fault. They, they, they looked at what they was there and they said, hey, you know what? These would make good sacrifices, Let's bring these animals back. And, and so they brought them back to make sacrifices to your God, by the way. Saul never said to my God. It was to your God. Oh, and who's that guy over there? Oh, that's the king. That's King Agag. We spared him alive. Oh, I thought you said you obeyed. Well, yeah, but, you know, mostly. He was supposed to kill King Agag as well. So Samuel says, bring that guy over here. And Samuel put him to death. And from that is that wonderful passage of scripture that says, the Lord does not delight as much in burnt offerings and sacrifices as he does in obedience to the Lord God himself. 
God wants our obedience, not our sacrifice. Why? Because if we're obedient, we don't have to sacrifice a sin offering. So God wants obedience. But see, Saul passed the buck. He said, no, it's their fault. It's not my fault. I really didn't do anything wrong. David says, no, nah, it was me. I did it. I was wrong. David had the right attitude now. His attitude has changed. He owned his sin. He repented of his sin. And then David also realizes that the punishment for his sin was not optional. You know, there's a verse in the New Testament that says, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is not optional. It is death. Every one of us deserve it because every one of us is a sinner. So God says, I, I'm not just going to ignore the wages of sin is death. I'm going to fulfill that. So what does he do? He sends his son Jesus. And his son Jesus dies on the cross for the sins of mankind. So the wages of sin, what is due for the, for the sinfulness of mankind is paid. It's satisfied. David understands that. My punishment is not optional. God must punish me for the sin that I have committed. He knew the character of God and God has to deal justly with sin. God cannot in anyone's life ever excuse sin. He can't because of who he is, because of his very nature. But here's the good news. He provided a sacrifice that would deal with the sin of mankind. And it even gets better than that if you can think of that. Not only did he provide for the initial sacrifice to save man from their sins, but you and I still sin, don't we? Even as Christians, even as believers, we still sin. So what's the solution? We read it in the, in the first book of John, chapter 1, verse 9, where John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What do we have to do? We have to confess. We have to admit that, yes, we transgress God's plans, God's laws, God's ways. We have to own it, and we confess it, and we deal with it. And God says, when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We've talked about this idea of confession many times. It's not making a list of what I did. That word confess means to agree with God about your action. So you name the sin, you agree with God that the sin is, is, is wrong before him and, and, and understand the consequences of that sin and you agree with God that you need to deal with it in your life and he allows us and helps us to work through that. But praise God, he has dealt with the everlasting punishment of sin. David understood the seriousness of sin and how God must deal with sin. So what does David do? Well, David hopes to obtain God's mercy. David is going to throw himself at the mercy of the one true God. Not only was David aware that he had many enemies, but he also is aware that he made himself at odds with God by what he did. When he, when he numbered the people, he obeyed, disobeyed a direct command from God. David had been one who saw the mercies of God over and over and over again in his life. That's why he was still alive at this point. He had many enemies, and his enemies were out to get him. Whether it was King Saul or a Philistine or, or another enemy, they all wanted David dead. And by God's grace and by God's mercy, David stayed alive, and now David is the king of Israel. He understands the mercies of his great God, and he says this, please, Please, God, let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are very great. But do not let me fall into the hands of man. Hmm. I'd much rather face God as one of his children than face man. And that's what David says. This reminds me of a song written by Mark Altrogi. I think that's his name. I don't know how you say his last name. But he reminds us of the love and the mercy of God and how they go hand in hand. He writes these words, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has ever conceived 
the glorious things that you have prepared for everyone who has believed. You brought us near. You called us your own. You made us joint heirs with your son. Here's the line that's been going through my mind as, I, as I've worked on this message. He says, objects of mercy. You and I are objects of mercy who should have known wrath. The wrath of God should be poured out on us. We are objects of mercy that have now known the wrath, have known the grace and mercy of God. Objects of mercy who should have known wrath were filled with unspeakable joy, riches of wisdom, unsearchable wealth, and the wonder of knowing your voice. You are our treasure and our great reward, our hope and our glorious king. How high and how wide, how deep and how long, how sweet and how strong is your love. How lavish your grace, how faithful your ways, how great is your love, O God. As objects of mercy, we understand, we know the grace and the mercy and the love of our true God. David understood that he hopes to obtain God's mercy by throwing himself at the mercy of God and saying, God, you do, you choose, you do what needs to be done in my life to make me right with you. Wow, what a lesson. What an example for us. So what does that move David to do? David understands God is going to bring this punishment upon him. And and, and he then goes ahead and he offers a sacrifice to God. Why? Because it's the right thing to do. In verses 22 through 30, especially looking at verse 24, he says, Then King David said to Ornan, No, but I will surely buy it for full price. David went to Ornan and said, hey, I need to buy this property so I can build an altar, so I can make a sacrifice, so I can make things right with God. And Ornan says, oh, king, take the land. You can have it. David said, "Uh uh-uh, it's not gonna work that way. I will not offer anything that costs me nothing. Listen, verse 24, then David went to Ornan and said, no, or no, Ornan said, no, but I will surely buy it for the full price, for I will not take what is yours for the Lord, nor offer burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David gave Ornan 600 shekels of gold by weight for the place, and David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings and called on the name of the Lord, and he answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of the burnt offering. David purchased Ornan's field for an offering. Now, at first glance, it might not seem like a big deal, but there's really a lot to it. David shows here that he's had a change of heart. His previous attitude was one of pride and unwillingness to change. Even when he was encouraged to do what was right by Joab, David refused to change. You see, David learned through this difficult season in this lesson in life that he must do what is right. His son Solomon would write about what David does here. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. David realized he was going to be destroyed if he didn't get his pride in check. He was in the midst of that destruction brought on by the pride of his own heart, the arrogance of his own heart. So what does he do? He confessed and he repented and God stopped the destruction. Can I tell you, there's a lesson in this for us. And I'm not going to get into it very much, but we are in the month of June, correct? And what has June become known for? It's Pride Month. Yeah. What is going to destroy David? Pride. As a nation, we are saying it's okay to transgress the law of God. To transgress who God is, his design for humanity. It's okay and in fact we're proud about it. We're loud and we're proud. Can I tell you something? If you're going to be loud and proud about anything, you need to be loud and proud about who God is, what he's done, and what he wants for us as his children. That's what we need. And I'm not saying be mean, be nasty, be rude, be hurtful. We need, to love the, we need to love everybody. And I'm not just talking about one sin here either. Our nation, our country, our world has become proud about the things that we do that transgress God's ways. Sometimes we call it freedom. No, it's bondage. It's bondage. 
We need to stand for what is right. That's what Peter told us to do last week. We're tying them together, right? If we are the servants of God, what do we do? We stand having done all to stand. We stand on what is true. We stand on what is right. And we represent God well where he places us. David confessed his pridefulness, his arrogance, and he said, God, I need to do what is right for you. We don't celebrate that kind of stuff. We confess it, we repent, and we turn back to God's pattern. We forsake the rebellion against the the ways of our, our great God. And again, we have to figure out ways to do that that still allows us to love the people who are sinful and to communicate God's love, God's grace, God's mercy to them. It's not easy. I'll agree with you right off the bat. It's hard. We live in a world that is so different than what all of us grew up in. But by the grace of God and by following the example of God, we can do right. But we must check our pride at the door. And we must do what God calls us to do. And we must stand for what is right. We see here that David, he prays and he makes a sacrifice. David built an offering. He offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. And he prayed to God. That's the key. He went to the one true God. And and he poured his heart out before the one true God. He confessed his sin. He didn't expect God to just wash it away. or, Or excuse it away. He confessed his sin to the one true God. And what is he doing here now? He's he's acting on obedience to God. In verse 18, David was told by God to build an altar on Ornan's threshing floor. Not just anybody's, but Ornan's. So he had to go to this man. He had to talk to him. He had to set it up. He had to sacrifice his own wealth. It cost him something. Sacrifice often costs, costs us something. That's why it's called sacrifice. Okay? So David sacrificed of his own well-being, his own wealth, his own worth to do what God asked him to do. This is David's second prayer in just a few verses. His first prayer was in verse 17 where he confessed and he sought God's mercy and forgiveness. We're not given the specifics of his prayer, but we know that he is calling on the one true God. He wants to know what God wants him to do. He wants to present himself with a contrite heart to God and he wants to seek God's will for his life. He's seeking God's forgiveness. Does God answer? It says, and he answered him from heaven. Well, who's in heaven? God. God answered him from heaven by fire on the altar of the burnt offering. What does that tell David. Hallelujah, God has accepted my sacrifice. What a great privilege and what a great blessing to know that we can talk to God and God hears our contrite heart and our confession of sin and forgives us and allows our relationship to be restored. Wow, what a great God. Not only does he provide for our forgiveness, but he provides for our restoration. We've all been in broken relationships before, haven't we? Where we want to see it restored. We want it to be made right. But because we're sinful people, that oftentimes doesn't happen. But God says, when you come to me with a broken and a contrite heart and you confess, I will restore. That's the great thing about 1 John 1, 9. If we confess... If we agree with God about our sins, he will forgive us. I've shared with you before that the Bible doesn't say that we have to ask God for forgiveness of our sins. That's something that we've made up along the way somewhere and we we go to God and say, God, will you please forgive me? We don't have to ask God to forgive me if I do what God says, if I confess my sins. That's why it's not a laundry list. It's an agreeing with God about my egregious sinful behavior. If I confess my sins, he will forgive my sins. He will restore the relationship with him. What a blessing it is to know that truth and that fact. David prays. 
about restoration. And then we see that David praises the Lord. After his offering has been accepted, we see that David's praise and rejoicing is full. The sacrifice, a praise to God. David had a grateful heart that God heard his prayer. He forgave his sins and accepted his sacrifice and stopped the judgment on Israel. So David praises God. When we stop and think about what God has done in our lives, it should promote and prompt praise in our hearts and in our lives. When we know that God has forgiven us and restored us so we can maintain a close fellowship with him, we should praise him for that. To God be the glory, great things he has done. This is an incredible passage of scripture and it's one that we see has application for us today. You see, here's another thing this passage of scripture reminds us, that if the Bible were written by mere men, these kinds of things wouldn't be recorded in it. David's not going to write that down and say, hey, this is, look, at, look at this terrible thing I did in my life. He, just like he would have left out the thing about Bathsheba. <laughs> I don't want you to know about those things about me because they don't speak highly of me. Men didn't write this. God wrote this. Why did God put those things? Why did God put Bathsheba in the scriptures? Why did God put David numbering Israel in the scriptures and then call him a man after God's own heart? We would not do that. You agree with me? We're we're not going to do that because it kind of doesn't make David look so good. But God says, no, I want my people to know that when they do wrong, when they sin, there is this thing called confession. There is this thing called restoration. And that's who I am as a God. I'm a God who hears confession and I'm a God who restores people to myself. Wow. That's why the sin of David is in the Bible. You and I, we know because we sin ourselves and we have to come before God and confess and seek that wonderful restoration that is available to us because our God is a gracious and merciful God. God left this passage here so we could learn from it and so we could live how we ought to live before him. It can be part of the problem, like David was, Or he can be part of the solution like David became when he confessed his sin and and got things right with God. David lived under the age of the law. Little different than the age in which we live in. But the lesson holds true. David didn't excuse his sinful attitude. He didn't complain that it was someone else's fault. He took responsibility. When God reveals sin in our lives, we need to take that responsibility. We need to change our heart by the grace of God. It's a great life lesson from a sinner who desired to have his relationship restored with God. Gained him a reputation. What's the reputation he gained? A man after God's own heart. I don't want my reputation to be a cheapskate. Even though it's well intended. I want my reputation to be one who's a man after God's own heart, who does what God asks him to do and lives the way God wants him to live. May that be the desire of all of us here this morning, to have that kind of a reputation that makes us right before our God. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you so much for this reminder from King David. There was so much in his life that is good So much in his life that points us to a right kind of relationship with you. So much in his life that we should want to pattern our lives after. And then, Father, you record these sinful actions in his life as well. Actions that if we were David, we would not want anyone to know about. And yet people down through the ages of humanity have read about them. It doesn't just stop with the reading about them, Lord, but it goes on to remind us that David's life, his relationship was restored to you, the one true God. Father, you're in the restoration business like no one else. You can take broken hearts, you can take broken lives, you can take broken people, and you can restore them into lives that you can use, people that you send out to serve you, to bring others to yourself. 
What a blessing and what a privilege that is that we have as your children. Help us to be people who are restored, made right with you, and then go on in our service for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.